Welcome to the Daily Thunder Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Rabar, beat writer for DailyThunder.com. Every week we have guests ranging from national sports writers and local reporters to OKC celebrities and Thunder staff and players. This week, our featured guest is Bleacher Report NBA writer, deputy editor of NBA Math, and co-host of Hardwood Knox Podcast, Mr. Dan Favalli. I talked to Dan about Thunder team and player rankings according to the numbers, as well as his thoughts on the Thunder possibly running the upcoming offseason and whether Sam Presti may buy, sell, or hold. We also talked to Daily Thunder co-owner and publisher John Napier and Forbes NBA writer Nick Crane about Chesapeake Energy's possible impending bankruptcy and what that means for the Thunder and the arena's naming rights both now and in the future. Up first, Bleacher Report's Dan Favalli. Joining us now on the show, Dan Favalli. Some of the coolest content floating around NBA Twitter, including writing a Bleacher Report, the Hardwood Knox podcast, along with Andy Bailey, and NBA Math, which punched out those charts visualizing how teams and players are performing frequently throughout the season. Dan, do you hand draw those charts yourself? I have zero to do with that. That is all uh, the founder and editor-in-chief, Adam Frommel, so I deserve absolutely no credit for that. <laughs> so you do a great job with, with Bleacher Report, and, and everybody knows Bleacher Report. I mean, it, it blew up, and it's one of kind of the cornerstones of NBA Twitter, of NBA social media, of just the NBA internet. Uh, the Bleacher Report is everywhere. How is it uh, working with Bleacher Report? It's been great. I've been there probably, it's been almost a decade at this point. So I've been very lucky, very, very fortunate to do what I do full time, obviously. Uh, No, especially now, two days ever feel like they're the same there. And um, it's cool to be associated with a brand that I, at least personally and probably biasly, I think does a really good job on on social media. And it is, uh, while there still might be a or there definitely is probably still a little bit of a, of a stigma there that we do have a, a lot of great writers, a great stable of NBA writers too. And um, like I said, it's been kind of a thrill being able to, to cover this league on a full-time basis for as long as I've been able to with them. So if you've been around for around a decade with, with Bleacher Report, you're, you're kind of one of the founding fathers, right? Are you, are you going to go on like the Mount Rushmore of, of Bleacher <laughs> Report when all is said and done? No, clearly not. Uh, I was there before they bought, were purchased by Turner, though. So uh, I've been really fortunate to be on through this entire transition and, and transformation. But I remain wildly unimportant in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> All right, before we get to, to Thunder-related stuff, because I love your work and I love what you do with NBA Math. And, and there's so much to kind of unwrap here with the Thunder and what you guys have talked about. I got to ask, I got to an NBA Bleacher Report writer on here. I, I got to say, what's up with all the Alex Caruso? Yeah, look, I have, I do not have anything to do with the social media team, but he is, uh, social media just gravitates towards him. I know there's, everyone sort of loves an underdog and that's definitely has to be part of it, but he's kind of just taken on this, his own brand, which you definitely wouldn't expect. And I don't know if it's because he looks like he's Cody Zeller's dad or should be <laughs> bars or something like that but um I, I know people from other fan bases get a little bit rankled by it but i i personally sort of get uh, more of a kick 
out of it. Um, and while I think people probably complain about the social media coverage of him, which is fair, the engagement on those posts is also through the roof. So it's also fair to, to post them. So um, I, I have no input on the Alex Caruso content that, that we put out. Dan, if, if I was getting clicks and retweets and likes on Alex Caruso posts, that's all I would do. So don't even worry about it, man. Actually, what's funny is, you know, he started off in the, uh, in the Thunder Farm League. Like, you know, he started playing with the, the Thunder's G League. And so I covered him a few times. And I, I thought he was better than most of those G League players and that he could make it in the league. I saw some skill. And I think other Thunder fans did as well. So there's Kind of this little kinship, actually, I think that Thunder <laughs> fans feel with Alex Caruso. But talking Thunder here, I wanted, you know, back in March, your last update as far as NBA team rankings, you had the Thunder rated number 10 and Chris Paul at number 15 among players in your rolling power rankings. Could you explain how NBA mass calculations work for both, for both the teams and the players and how much those rankings will hold up once the NBA finally resumes play. Like, do you expect the Thunder to look like about the 10th best team? Uh, I, I don't know that I know what to expect of any team upon return, but um, for NBA Math specifically, they're using for the player power rankings and team power rankings, they're using game scores and those performances to come up with sort of this recent snapshot of how well individual players are faring and then teams as well. And I think it's really, I mean, Chris Paul has been fantastic this year. He should make All-NBA. I don't know that a lot could change in the eight regular season games that we supposedly have left in the, the Disney bubble. The, the Thunder in general, though, they've been a pleasant surprise in the sense that if you looked at this roster, I think you could always say, hey, maybe it'll be competitive. But no one really expected the roster to still be together beyond the trade deadline. And to see them kind of entrenched where they are, I, I don't even think it's a stretch to say that they are a top 10 team. And they could probably even be a little bit better than that. Uh, you know, they're, they're one troubling, or I don't want to say they're one troubling thing, but the one question that I have going into the, to the playoffs specifically is can they sort of stabilize their record against winning teams because those are going to be the squads that they face in the postseason. And when you are 9-17 and 17 against them on the year, which is the, the worst mark among Western Conference playoff teams with the exception of the, the Memphis Grizzlies, who uh, everyone is shocked it's going to be in the playoffs in the first place that's that gets a little room for concern but the way that Oklahoma City has played this year that's someone that you don't want to have to face in the first round and there are no easy outs in the Western Conference but this is a team that looks like even though it's probably uh, top heavy it's a team that really looks like they could win a playoff series and then end up giving a contender a real problem in the second round even if that team is the the Los Angeles Lakers that they're facing in the semifinals. Thunder fans will love to hear that. And I think you're right. I think you nailed everything on the head. The Thunder definitely are top heavy. And maybe in the playoffs, you know, when, when rotations shorten a little bit, maybe that favors the Thunder a little bit, kind of equals the playing field a little bit. We'll see about that. It has been nice to see the Thunder take care of business against teams they're supposed to beat. Or that, you know, for a, a portion of the season, we didn't know that they were supposed to beat them because we thought that the Thunder were on that level. But as it turns out, you know, this was a, you know, top five-ish seed. In the West, which, like you said, most people did not see that happening. They've just kind of maximized their abilities. But it's been nice to see them beat, you know, the bad teams and the middling teams. But you're right, they've struggled against those tough teams. It does seem like they've gotten better, and I think that your NBA math reflects this and having them 10, uh, you know, in a snapshot of the recent play. I think they've gotten better as the season has gone along just overall. 
um, and that chemistry is, has kind of helped the team perform better. And, and the record, I think, against those playoff teams has improved throughout the season as well. So maybe that carries over. But like you said, it's kind of impossible, right? This is uncharted territory. Who knows what's going to happen? What do you expect when the NBA resumes? You know, you have eight games and then the playoffs. Do you think any big surprises will happen in this weird season? Or do you expect, you know, the top teams to, to play like the top teams and the bottom teams to play like the bottom teams? Yeah, I think I'd go more towards the latter. The, the fact that they kept the playoff format the same where every series is going to be best of seven, it makes it that much harder for an upset or a truly surprising team to to come out of certain rounds or an entire conference. This isn't a situation where, oh, if the, if the Magic get hot at the right time, they can come out of the East. It really doesn't feel that way. Uh, that being said, because everyone is just so close in the West uh, between you know two through seven specifically, but even just looking at the Lakers at number one, where if you had a best of seven series between the, the Thunder and the Lakers and Oklahoma City won that, would it be an upset? Yes. Would it be an historically unforeseen upset. I, I don't know that I would go that far. And so maybe there's the potential for that wild card to happen in the West where a team like the Thunder, that is a, a little bit top heavy. Do they feel more comfortable because Chris Paul's had so much rest to really beef up his postseason minutes to, you know, 36 plus or wherever uh, he would be at. And does that help them? You could ask the same question about maybe the Nuggets. Are they a team that not necessarily banged up, but if you have Nikola Jokic, who appears to be in better shape, there's questions about how that weight loss will impact his post game. But if you end up just being a better version of the team that you already were, then that sort of get hot at the right time factor really does come into play because so many of these teams are on equal footing to begin with. That's probably where the real intrigue lies for me. Anyway, it's not the play in tournament potential. That whole thing is a borderline farce with the NBA. It's not necessarily what's going to happen in the East. I still would like to see, you know, can maybe Toronto or Boston give Milwaukee a run for its money, but I'm still just looking at the meat and potatoes in the West is who among those teams outside of Lakers and the Clippers might throw us for a whirl. And it wouldn't be totally out of left field, whether it's the Rockets or the Thunder or the Nuggets. But what if one of those teams is the one to be hot at the right time or that they, that the rest really did them well to where they're healthier, to, to where they're just fresher than you normally would have seen them in the postseason? You, you did an article um, talking about the NBA offseason and, and a lot of storylines for the, the upcoming offseason, whatever that may be. We have no idea when that's going to happen. But you, you mentioned that Preston OKC could run the offseason, buy, sell, hold. It doesn't matter. They can justify any direction. And whatever they choose, the rest of the league is going to fill it. That's a quote from you. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how they fit into the NBA picture and how far the ripple effects from their next move could, could reach? Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's not a lot of, for the entire league at large, there's just not a ton of talent or cap space available in the free agent market uh, this year. And so if quality free agents are going to leave, it ends up making this huge difference. So if Oklahoma City just decides that they don't want to pay Danilo Gallinari's next contract, that's a probably a top, no, it's not probably, he's a top five free agent at this point. And so wherever he goes, that ends up being just a major shift in power relative to the the talent that's available. And then when you're looking at the potential for trades this off season, there are always situations um, that are, arise 
that are unexpected, but you're just going through the names right now. And so many teams have kind of undergone turnover um, over the past couple seasons, or we've seen so many players move that you don't really look at any of these big names as no-brainer trade candidates. And Bradley Beal is probably the closest we come. Maybe some people want to throw Drew Holiday in there, even though it seems like he's really happy in New Orleans. And so you have a team in Oklahoma City that's really good, has a handful of really good players on their team, and yet they still seem like this... I don't know if risk is the right word, but they still seem like an organization that could pivot into a rebuild on a whim, essentially. And if they do, now you're looking at names like Chris Paul, even though his contract still isn't going to be great, particularly looking at how the salary cap might might shrink. Um, But Steven Adams as well. Dennis Schroeder has been out of his mind this year too. And on an expiring contract, you expect him to draw some interest. So then they have a chance to really disperse this talent to teams throughout the league who aren't in a position to add talent in free agency either. And so that has a ripple effect on its own. But if you're the thunder and you decide to stand pat, now you're taking away avenues for that certain teams were counting on to maybe improve. What if, you know, the, the Miami heat were really counting on getting a crack at Gallinari in free agency, or maybe um, looking at Chris Paul as a, as a trade target should Giannis sign his supermax with the Bucks, And that, that's just really one example. And if you are going to say that the Thunder are going to stamp pat, or maybe even they take it to the next level and say, yeah, we're going to run this back and we're actually going to um, try and maneuver it so we unlock the full non-taxpayer mid-level and then we're going to spend it on one player to really try and upper ante, you're sort of just throwing more chaos into the Western Conference fire because you look at next season – um, if we're assuming no major changes and that everyone is healthy, what is the team in the Western Conference that can be unequivocally counted out of the playoffs? And I don't know that the team exists. We can talk about the Timberwolves. We can talk about the Kings. We can talk about the Suns. But there will be 15 teams in the West, again, if there are no major changes made, that will fancy themselves postseason teams. And if the Thunder continue to be one of them after finishing fifth or or fourth in the Western conference, depending upon where they wind up after the regular season ends, that ends up having just a huge impact on that Western conference hierarchy. That's, that's very well put. And I think you're exactly right. And the Thunder do have, I mean, they can buy, sell, hold, like you said, and, and all of those things I think would make sense. And I do think that there will be interest for Gallinari, for Schroeder, for Chris Paul, even, uh, even maybe Steven Adams, all these vets that the Thunder have, it does feel like Presti can go a lot of different directions. And, and I think every Thunder fan is really curious to see what they do. I think everybody expected, like you said earlier, trades or rebuilding this season, and that didn't happen. And you look at the team, and you know, you if you add a full MLE type player in the off season. I mean, this squad and, and then maybe some improvement from, from guys like Lou Dorton, another leap from Shade Gilgis Alexander. This team, it seems like would be kind of in the thick of things, or they can use some of those draft picks and go out and get a guy, get a, get a star if they wanted to. There's so many options. I think ultimately most thunder beat reporters and, and, and people who cover the Thunder expect a rebuild at some point, and maybe that's based upon Chris Paul and whether he stays or goes. But it's going to be really fun to see what happens. Now, speaking of Chris Paul, I know you've kind of written a bit about what a, the oft-rumored Knicks trade might look like. Could you talk about that some? If, if Chris Paul were to be traded to the Knicks, what kind of package would you expect? 
it, I, it, I guess it still depends on what OKC's asking price would be in such a situation. And that's something that I still kind of have a tough time to gauge. Uh, he's going to make all NBA, as I said before this season, but at two years and $85.6 million, you know, I don't know that that contract, given his age, um, given his injury history, particularly with hamstrings that you can go into negotiations, even with a team as notoriously incompetent as the Knicks and demand <laughs> these top tier prospects. And my guess would be that you just want immediate and long-term cap relief. And then you're just trying to see what assets you can extract out of them. And the Knicks do have the potential to carve out enough cap space where they could just take back Chris Paul's salary without sending anything else out. I don't think that's the route they would go because then that sort of hamstrings their own flexibility in other places, but they have a ton of could be expiring contracts. When you look at Bobby Portis's team option, the non guarantees on Taj Gibson, Wayne Ellington, Alfred Payton, uh, even Reggie Bullock. And so I would imagine that you're looking at maybe if the Knicks want to use even Julius Randle as an anchor who has an extra non-guaranteed season on his deal. I believe he's only guaranteed around $4 million or something like that in 21-22. They have all those salary anchor contracts. And so my guess would be you're using one or some combination of, of those if the Knicks decide not to operate with cap space. And then, and then from there, it's a matter of what type of assets can we get out of the Knicks? Can you get this year's number 27 pick? Can you get Dallas's 2021 pick? Are they willing to give up Kevin Knox in a deal? Or should the Thunder even be interested in Kevin Knox right. in a deal? And maybe that's something they have going for them where if you take a Frank Nielakina, who I remain a believer in, or you take a Kevin Knox, they sort of make enough without having proven enough that the Thunder can spin that as not getting so much back in return. And that gives them more leverage in negotiations to, can you get one of those young players who, yeah, it's kind of a dice roll, but they're, they're young, high lottery picks. Um, obviously Kevin Knox is more intriguing than Neil Keeney at this point, just because two years left on his rookie scale and plays more of a desired position as, as sort of that wing who at least in summer league showed he could handle the ball and work off the dribble. And if you can get one of those players and then a first round pick that ends up being a huge win for the thunder. I just don't know if the Knicks would be willing to, to go that far in negotiations. But I think that's sort of the basis of what you're looking at is, is cap relief. One of their young players, not named RJ Barrett or Mitchell Robinson, and then a future first round pick. Completely agree. And, and I think that, you know, Thunder fans have kind of fallen in love with Chris Paul. It's, it's funny. Chris Paul is like this great to me kind of science experiment on how fans can be because Thunder fans loved Chris Paul when he was here, you know, when, when New Orleans played in Oklahoma City. Then he went to the, the Clippers and the Rockets and Thunder fans ended up hating the guy. Then he came back to OKC and, you know, Two weeks into the season, Thunder fans are just falling in love with Chris Paul. So I think a lot of people are going to be sad to see Chris Paul go if he goes. But, you know, if, if the Thunder can, like you said, get a young guy, even if it is a Kevin Knox who hasn't shown much yet, but he was a high lottery pick and or a, a first round draft pick, that just adds to what the Thunder got for Russell Westbrook. I mean, a couple of first round draft picks from the Rockets, a couple of pick swaps, and then you add whatever the Thunder may get for Chris Paul and uh, you know Sam Presti just keeps winning as far as as trades go and flipping assets for more assets and those assets for more assets but you know his right hand man the guy who has kind of helped him uh, definitely in the draft process I, I think that somebody who helped him push to draft Russell Westbrook Troy Weaver who's been here you know for the long haul he just signed with the Detroit Pistons he's going to be their general manager well deserved uh, for for Troy Weaver, and really happy for him. 
but it's a blow to the Thunder. But I'm curious uh, what you think, Dan. How much of a blow is that to the Thunder? How much of a help uh, was he to Presti? And, and what do you think Presti does? I don't know if you know any candidates necessarily, but, but how do you think that Presti will do kind of on his own, if we, if we were to say it that way? I think it's a big loss. Um, just looking at what he's done, helped the organization do anecdotally and knowing that he helped what his scouting efforts went into, not just with this organization, obviously, but looking at Russell Westbrook, James Harden and Serge Ibaka and how he valued them in their drafts. And then more impressive to me has been his involvement. And this is, you know, it's a testament to Presti as well and his entire staff, but the thunder of just undergone all these renovations on the fly, borderline teardowns on the fly. When you look at losing a Kevin Durant, um, when you have to trade Paul George and, and Russell Westbrook when you weren't planning to. And the fact that they've gotten back so many assets, but also remained as competitive as they have. I mean, even looking at a trade like getting rid of a James Harden, that never looked like it was going to cripple the organization, but to remain where they were for so long, um, despite his loss where, you know, any misstep really could have cost them just because of what James Harden ended up turning into, even getting rid of Serge Ibaka um, the one year. There's just so much that they've done or been forced into doing that you would look at without seeing the return or what happened next as less than ideal, and yet they're still just hanging around. And so he has to be credited as one of the architects for what they've done in that sense. And if, if you are Sam Presti, it's just a huge loss in, in that regard you can still trust that um the thunder will have the same approach as they've always had to roster building it'll be interesting though maybe to see what this looks like as a from scratch process now if they do decide um to lean into a rebuild and i don't know if maybe they try and entice some other assistant gms to, uh, from other teams maybe who were involved in the the detroit Pistons search like a Clippers assistant Mark Hughes or a Nets assistant Jeff Peterson, can they somehow offer them more power, clear paths to advancement maybe, and, and perhaps that's the route you go? Or the Thunder have always been a, a team that kind of values doing things from within um, and, and stockpiling stuff for the future while planning for the present. And so uh, now that they really have all these building blocks looking at, I think it's like a trillion first-round picks over the yeah. next six drafts, um, do they look at trying to build someone up from – within the organization. So I do think Presti's job gets harder. I wouldn't say that this is a, a crushing blow because you still do have the mastermind, for lack of a better term, behind everything that the Thunder have done. But knowing how important Troy, Re Rever Troy Weaver excuse me, has been to um, the scouting process throughout his just entire NBA stay and then what he's done with the Thunder specifically to help them um, tread water and, and deal with these unfortunate hands that, that they were dealt, it just ends up being a huge loss in that sense. I think you're exactly right. For me, I kind of look at it as kind of like Bill Belichick. Like he's lost so many assistant coaches throughout the years and it, and it always hurts. It's always a blow. You don't want to see those, you know, good assistants go, but ultimately who do you want more than any of those? You want Bill Belichick. And I think it's kind of the same way with, with the Thunder, Sam Presti, you know, no matter, you know, who's come and gone and things like that, he's kind of been the mainstay. And, and like you said, the mastermind, uh, so I think the Thunder will be all right, even though it is a blow and I hate to see Troy Weaver go. I think that the Thunder is still in good hands as long as Sam Presti is here. 
Check out shopgoodokc.com to pick out a gorgeous hand-printed shirt. They have a Daily Thunder collection featuring the sixth man of the year, DT logo tees, and a Together and Struggle print, which is also a part of the Solidarity collection that reps support for local businesses and the OKC community during the current crisis. Hi, this is Olivia Punchall, senior writer at Daily Thunder and co-host of our new show, Crossbolts. Tune in to Crossbolts weekdays on Twitter and Instagram as Brandon and I debate everything from Thunder basketball to NBA fashion. Then chime in with your own opinion and let us know who won the debate. But let's be honest, it's probably me. Now back to the Daily Thunder podcast. I wanted to talk to you about the series you're doing of top 10 players for each team uh, for the decade. I, I think it's a fascinating piece, and you haven't released OKC's episode yet. I don't know if you've kind of dug in and started the process looking at it yet, but I wanted to talk to you. Maybe we could get kind of a, kind of a preview on that uh, and maybe how the Thunders roster is probably over those past 10 years as stacked as maybe anybody. Yeah, uh, I've only done some preliminary stuff on OKC. We're still a few teams away from them. But the whole process is basically we have myself and Adam Frommel doing our own rankings, and then we put out um, a solicitation on the NBA Math account for fans to vote on who they would have in their top 10. And it begins with the 2010-2011 season. And so looking at how many different iterations of the Thunder we've seen since then, um, there are going to be just so many different big names on there. You know that Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and Serge Ibaka are givens, but James Harden spent enough time there um, in this decade, maybe to crack the top 10. Uh, Paul George is definitely going to be on there because he spent two full seasons in, in Oklahoma city. And so you, you know, Steven Adams is going to be on that list. And it's one of the uh, ones I don't want to say it'll be more clear cut because I think there'll probably be some interesting decisions to make towards the, you know, the bottom looking at maybe the eight through 12 spots, trying to figure that out and, and looking at some of the better complementary players that they've had over the years. You know, is Andre Robertson going to be on that list? Just off the top of my head, I honestly have no idea. Um, so that'll be an interesting one to go through. And it's sort of the complete opposite of what we went through when we did the Los Angeles Lakers episode, because that's been such a toxic decade in Los Angeles with the exception of having LeBron James coming free agency. So the past season and a half having him and Anthony Davis, that there were just these weird names that you would never think would be associated with a flagship franchise like the Lakers. When you're talking about a decade player rankings with the thunder though, they're just going to be a bunch of stars on there. And when you're going to look at kind of the name power they've had on their roster at the same time over this past decade, uh, it's going to be wild uh, to just remember that, oh, they, they didn't win a title this decade. Uh, you know, they came close. They, they were postseasons that got derailed. But when you just look at how much star power they've had consolidated on their roster at one point at so many different times over this decade, it's kind of uh, crazy that we're not talking about a team that made more than one finals appearance during this stretch. And, and I'm glad you, you talked about that because I think it's a fascinating uh, talk piece. When you look back at that decade of Thunder basketball, there was so much success. Four Western Conference finals trips, a finals trip. And, you know, so many seasons uh, during that title window were cut short because of injury. You had the uh, 
Russell Westbrook meniscus injury when they were the number one seed. You had the Kevin Durant injury where he was out pretty much the whole season, the following season. Then you had uh, the season where they went to the Western Conference Finals right after that. But Serge Ibaka, uh, he gets hurt and misses a couple of Spurs games and then kind of plays 50% the rest of that series that went six. When you look back at this Thunder team, though, it seems like through social media, at least, and through kind of the general consensus of, of fans outside of OKC, people look at it as a disappointment because, you know, the rings culture, the Thunder never won a ring. Uh, like you said, you, you look at all that talent, and you just expect, you know, a ring, two rings, three rings, but it just didn't happen. Do you think ultimately 10 years down the road, 20 down – years down the road when people look at that decade of thunder basketball do you think they'll view it as a success or a disappointment it has to be viewed as a success in my opinion just looking at the market they've worked out of looking at how relevant they've stayed over this time despite undergoing so many losses uh many of which were or all of which really were just not by choice when you look at all of them Serge Ibaka is basically the one they ended on their own terms um I think you can absolutely still criticize them for the for the James Harden trade that happened so early on in the decade, and for this decade, OKC has the second-highest winning percentage in the NBA in the regular season behind only the Spurs. That matters, that type of sustainability. And I think it would be a little bit different if this was a matter of them never putting enough talent in place to win a title, and I think that we probably could, or at least as someone who zooms out from a national perspective, might look at some of the cosmetic makeups of these Thunder teams and wonder why they never really just prioritized more shooting around a Russell Westbrook and, and a Kevin Durant team. It seems like that was a no-brainer, particularly when you were going with just Russell Westbrook. It still felt like they were relying on these lengthy non-shooters with high defensive upside. Still, they were more so the victims of just these untimely injuries that you just went through. I think you can argue that at least three could be championship pushes were just derailed by having these key injuries. Uh, wasn't there even a postseason, unless I'm misremembering, that Serge Ibaka got injured as well when he was still kind of at his peak? So yep, yep. That's, that's, some, that's what I remember more with the Thunder. And so the, they were there. It was just that um, for forces mostly out of their control, it feels like they weren't able to get over the hump. And maybe if the James Harden trade never happens, things are different. But I think that's the one thing that you can really criticize them for because they've handled everything else exceptionally and navigated all these other strifes and just, just basketball hardships um, so well to just be so relevant, even still. Like we're talking about this right now that I don't think you could remember this decade as anything more than a, a success. And that really it involves not just you know the past not just the beginning of the decade or when they had Kevin Durant Russell Westbrook or how they rebounded after Kevin Durant left but when they looked like they were tearing the whole thing down getting rid of Westbrook and, and Paul George and you thought that the rebuild was coming but they were so good that this team was compelled to to stay together and that's just another testament to everything they've done throughout the decade I love to hear that, and I think Thunder fans will love to hear that because I think that, you know, as time goes on, you know, the disappointment of not winning a ring uh, hopefully uh, will be replaced by feelings of, hey, you know, this team was incredibly successful, the small market team, uh, and so many superstars played for this team, and there was so much success during that decade. And, and like you said, just so many forces out of their control that, that went against them in, in winning a ring. Now – before I let you go, last thing I want to talk about, coming back to this season and talking about the, the end of this season and the playoffs and all that, you know, at some point, NBA awards will be handed out. And, 
you guys, with your NBA math and, and looking at the numbers and things like that, ESPN uh, did NBA award predictions uh, a few weeks ago, and, and I posted it on Twitter that they had Dennis Schroeder ranked third in sixth man of the year. And I feel like Thunder fans feel like there's little doubt that Dennis Schroeder should be the slam dunk sixth man of the year award winner. I'm just curious by the numbers and NBA math and stuff like that, because that's kind of like the, the one award that, that Thunder fans are really kind of rallying behind. There's a t-shirt and everything. What do the numbers say? Is it, is it one of the Clippers guys or, or is it Schroeder? What do you think? Who ends up winning sixth man of the year this year? I think Schroeder fits the typical archetype of the, the sixth man of the year award where you're looking at these volume scores who, you know, unless you're Lou Williams who just collects these awards, uh, like trading cards, post-run cards, whatever you want to say, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a breakout year for him. I mean, he's shooting basically you break down every area of the floor and he's shooting a career high from pretty much every area. Um, I think what works against him is how much the OKC offense has fallen off when they're not running um, him with, Chris Paul, even when him and uh, Shea Gillis Alexander been on the court together, it's uh, the offense has not been statistically pretty. I don't know that he would be my number one pick at this point. Um, I think it's going to end up being one of the Clippers guys. I actually wouldn't pick one of the Clippers guys. I would go with Schroeder or Dante DiVincenzo in Milwaukee, who's been somewhat quietly just absolutely spectacular this year. Uh, but that's going to be probably, along with Coach of the Year, the the two toughest awards to to really vote on because I think you can make a case for a bunch of um, different guys, including Montrezl Harrell or or Lou Williams. But Schroeder probably finishes on my mock ballot um, at least number two. And look, there's still technically, as far as we know, some regular season left. And this is the type of award where I think someone can stand out enough to to help themselves win it. Dan, you do such a great job with Bleacher Report and and all those things. Tell everybody where they can find your work, uh, where they can find you on Twitter, all those things. Promote everything you've got because everything you do, uh, I enjoy reading and listening to. Well, first and foremost, thank you for the kind words. Uh, they are most definitely not deserved, but I appreciate <laughs> them all the same. Uh, if they want to follow my work, Twitter's just the best way to do it, at Dan Valley, F-A-V-A-L-E. That's where they'll find uh, anything I write for Bleacher Report all the stuff that we're working on collectively at MBA math. And uh, that's where I'll also be promoting my own podcast, the, the hardwood Knox podcast. Perfect. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. You were, you were great to have on the show. You know, you should look into this podcast business. You, you're a natural man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. We now have a special presentation of the Daily Thunder podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Rabar, but I'm going to take a back seat this week to owner of the Daily Thunder podcast, Mr. John Napier. How are you doing? Fantastic. Now, John is on because owning Daily Thunder, you know, one of the world's best uh, websites for all NBA material and definitely the best for Thunder material. Uh, it's just actually a, a side job for you. You are a lawyer, and specifically, you're a bankruptcy lawyer. So we'll get back to that in just a moment. We also have joining us on the show, Mr. Nick Crane, who is an NBA writer for Forbes magazine. How are you doing, Nick? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Also a co-host of the Uncontested podcast, which is a friend of Daily Thunder and the Daily Thunder podcast. So what we're going to talk about today is the bankruptcy 
Chesapeake Energy Arena, the naming rights, all that stuff. It's been talked about a lot in the past few days, so we just kind of want to clear the air. So we have two experts, John, uh, a bankruptcy lawyer, and then Nick, who has written in the past about the naming rights. And, and I know that you know a lot of details and a lot of kind of things that other people don't know about the, the naming rights and, and all that that goes into it. So what I'm going to do this week, I'm just going to kind of step back and hand it off to you guys. John, what exactly does Chesapeake Energy declaring bankruptcy mean? I mean, this is like Michael Scott in the office. Is he, they yell, I declare bankruptcy and then nothing changes or, or what happens here? I declare Bankruptcy! Uh, well, I appreciate you referencing the Michael Scott uh, scene that I included in my article on DailyThunder.com. And one other thing I'm going to mention, too, is that I am not currently a bankruptcy lawyer. I'm an in-house lawyer for a company, um, but I did do bankruptcy law for over six years. Uh, so I'm pulling on some past knowledge and I will probably be speaking in generalities because I don't have the bankruptcy code memorized any longer. But essentially, when you file for bankruptcy, Chapter 11, which is what Chesapeake will be filing, there's a lot of value to the company in preserving it as a what they might say a going concern as a company. And so it's very strategic to file Chapter 11. It's not kind of like a devastating moment in time where the company starts to fold up and everything goes downhill. The point of a Chapter 11 is to preserve the value of the business. That's, that's an interesting point. And I know you, you'll have a little more background on this too, but I feel like the, the average person hears bankruptcy and they assume, you know, lights turn off, doors close, everybody leaves, and it's just no longer a business, which is more the chapter seven. And, and I think with Chesapeake, you know, if they, they do indeed file bankruptcy, I, it's hard for me to believe it's happening as soon as reports are saying, just because, you know, as you mentioned, they, they did give some signs back in November on their 10 Q saying there was some distress in the company and, and all that kind of stuff was going on and they've made it through thus far. We're also in a unique market in which, you know, normally in an oil and gas downturn, it's easy to forecast when prices may come up with supply and demand and everything going on. But with COVID, it's interesting because it adds another layer to the equation. It it's, may not be an upswing in the market as quickly as it may have been in the past. So we might see a second wave of COVID. We may see more businesses going under. But I think it's interesting that you know, Chesapeake may be, may be filing Chapter 11, especially being an energy company. You know, they have a whole lot of unique assets. I mean, last year, I think they brought in close to nine mil or $9 billion in revenue. So even if they do go through a bankruptcy process, which, which as you know, is, is a legal process and in front of a court, you know, there's, there's creditors that can buy that debt from them. They can restructure internally. They can come out fine. In fact, there's quite a few companies in that space that, that, that forego fully going under and come out strong. Um, a lot of times, you know, four or five years later, if things don't turn out right, they could go back into chapter 11. I, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain on, uh, you don't have to say any names, obviously, but have you worked with energy companies in the past and, and how has that fared for them? And were you representing the company? Or were you representing the, the, the creditors that were buying off the debt? What was your uh, capacity in that lawyer, uh, that role you were undergoing? 
Yeah, and, and I've worked with both oil and gas companies or oil and gas adjacent companies in bankruptcy as the debtor also worked with companies who were creditors to those uh, companies as well. So um, it does really depend on the company, the assets, you know, how much debt they have and how much the creditors view the value of a bankruptcy. And what was indicated in the Reuters article was that they had secured or were negotiating a $900 million dip loan, debtor in possession financing. And what that really means is they're, they're going to get an extra $900 million to carry them through the bankruptcy case. So if someone is willing to pony up that kind of money, that's a pretty strong indication that there's value to be seen. So pulling on some recent uh, knowledge, I worked on a bankruptcy case for um, an energy company uh, four years ago, and they originally filed for Chapter 11, believing that they might be able to reorganize. They got into it that the debt was too high, the assets weren't that valuable, and the creditors really just weren't um, interested in pursuing a reorganization. And so they had to flip to a Chapter 7 um, and liquidate down the company. So it, it really depends a lot on the company, but there are some positive signs that there's value with Chesapeake because they do have a lot of assets. They have a lot of valuable assets. Um, they've been selling assets, and I think in part to generate revenue and also to stave off the financial situation that they are currently in. Um, so they can explore some of those sales in bankruptcy too, because there's a powerful way to sell things in bankruptcy called a 365 sale. And when you sell property from a debtor in bankruptcy, the buyer gets that free and clear of any uh, liens, claims, and encumbrances, uh, which is actually the most powerful way to buy property where you never have to worry about title. You would get 100% clear title because you have a court order that says it's clear. Yeah, it's fascinating too because a company like Chesapeake in specific, you know, looking at their M&A activity in 2018, uh, they acquired Wild Horse for $4 billion with a B. So you, I keep coming back to the fact that Thunder fans and, and people all over are, are discussing a three to $4 million per year naming rights deal. Uh, and while that sounds like a lot of money to people like us, to a company like Chesapeake, that's really not that much money. Um, ever since that $4 billion acquisition, it, it seems like in 2019, everything they've been doing is selling off to generate some capital. But even if they do you know, go through this bankruptcy period, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will lose the naming rights, which I think is another important point. And I've got a couple examples here from the past. So the Air Canada Center, in which the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Raptors currently play, uh, back in 1999, four years after the stadium opened, Air Canada actually filed for bankruptcy, which threw their $1.5 million a year naming rights deal into question. They ultimately ended up emerging from bankruptcy, which is certainly possible for a company like Chesapeake in 2004. And then 18 months later, after they filed bankruptcy, they kept their namesake. And obviously, that's, that's still the name today. You've also got the flip side, what is now Gillette Stadium, where the New England Patriots play. Uh, used to be called CGMI Stadium. They entered into a 15-year, $114 million deal back in 2000. They actually ended up losing their sponsorship contract before the team's first game in that stadium. They were a part of that dot-com bubble that, that we saw crash and... Their stock price fell. Uh, two years later, all of that sponsorship was gone and they no longer had the naming rights. And then there's a third option, which I think people have floated around on Twitter too. And we can definitely get in the, into this because I'd love to, to pick your brain on companies that may pick up the naming rights if it does become an option. But 
the Verizon Center, where the Washington Wizards currently play, used to be called the MCI Center, which was owned by MCI WorldCom. Uh, they went bankrupt in 2004, and at the time, it was actually the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history. During that time, Verizon actually acquired what remained of WorldCom and their assets, including the naming rights, and that stadium is still called the Verizon Center. So there's quite a few options regardless of, of what that bankruptcy looks like long term. I'd be curious to pick your brain on what companies, whether they're, they're tied to the Thunder, tied to Oklahoma, or actually you know, have their headquarters in Oklahoma, what companies do you see that could pick up this sponsorship if Chesapeake loses their rights? I think that's a really good question. And I'd be curious what, what Brandon thinks that the fans might really be interested in seeing in a name. Cause that's, that's what you'll see a lot on Twitter is these Oklahoma based companies or companies in Oklahoma with uh, large operations. And everybody kind of thinks, Oh, well that's going to be the likely company that's going to come in and uh, buy naming rights, but it doesn't have to be an Oklahoma company. There could be some sort of national brand uh, that may be interested in uh, coughing up the money to pay for naming rights. Um, but so far, the team has seemed like they have really been focused on uh, local sponsorships and the deal for the Love's jersey patch is, I think, a pretty good indication of that because those are pretty valuable. And I think the Thunder were looking at national brands as well, but wanted to go with a, a local brand. Brandon, what, do you, what would you think would be a great name for the, the, the arena if uh, it was your, your option? Well, I've always from the very beginning thought that calling the arena the Thunderdome was the biggest no-brainer. I mean, it just I mean, it's by far the coolest and most bad A sounding name that you can have for an arena. I mean, you gotta call your arena the Thunderdome if you're the Thunder. And I don't really care, you know, which company buys it, because no matter what company buys it, you can just stick Thunderdome at the end. I think that the Sonic Thunderdome sounds awesome because it actually makes sense together. You know, when you look at the other meaning of what Sonic can mean, uh, and that's a local company. Plus, you got, you know, the whole when, – when a company that's a, a food company or a restaurant sponsors an arena, there's always the chance for free French fries or corn dogs or something like that. If, like, they make a certain amount of points or free throws or missed free throws or whatever it is. Uh, so I'd like to see the Sonic Thunderdome and I, I floated the Thunderdome on Twitter. Like as soon as Olivia, you know, broke that Chesapeake would be filing for bankruptcy. I said, okay, no matter what happens, we gotta call this the Thunderdome. Right. And, you know, based on Twitter response, I think that's by far the most popular name amongst Thunder fans. So, uh, don't care who buys it. Got a name at the Thunderdome. One, one thing that I'm going to add to that, though, is that uh, Sonic was purchased in 2018 by an out-of-state company. Uh, oh, they're for, the worst. Not Sonic, whoever purchased it from out-of-state. Uh, is the headquarters still here? Did they move the headquarters? They still, yeah, as far as I know, I think they still have pretty significant operations here in Oklahoma City. And so the actual Sonic, the company, the subsidiary of this uh, company that was bought um, – well, that's, it's, it's that's still like, Oklahoma City. Know, a but, lot yeah. of like, like Toby Keith doesn't, you know, he, he's out in Nashville and stuff a lot, but he, he made sure to make a bar and grill here. So it could be the same kind of deal. Like <laughs> Sonic's roots are in Oklahoma, uh, but they could, uh, they could still, you know, purchase the arena because they're, they're still Okies at heart, right? Like there's no yeah. here. 
you know, and I want to go back to something that, you know, Nick, you gave some really good examples of what could happen or some um, other examples of companies in bankruptcy uh, who had naming rights deals, because I think that's really a valuable way of looking at it. And when a company files for bankruptcy, one of the things they're going to do is look at all of their existing contracts and decide which ones are really valuable, because if they're valuable, we want to keep them because they're going to be important to the reorganized company when they exit bankruptcy. But the ones that are really bad, well, this is an opportunity for us to shed those contracts so we're not paying out on bad deals. So they may look at this naming rights deal that they signed um, several years ago that only has a few years on it left, really, and think, well, we want to come out of this and preserve the brand value that Chesapeake has. And for the three, $4 million that it costs for this naming rights deal, that's worth keeping. So they say, hey, let's not mess with that. We'll decide to keep that contract and proceed. And there'll be no change to the name. Um, or another thing that happens too is the companies get into bankruptcy and they realize that maybe the, the debt can't be restructured to an acceptable level by all the creditors. And they start to look at buyers for the company. Um, that's been something that Chesapeake has been uh, and rumors about is that they're uh, going to get bought by an outside company. Um, and that may be an opportunity for somebody to buy Chesapeake in whole or to buy all of the assets. And one of the assets they could buy could be that naming rights deal. And it could become something else arena without that company having to come in and renegotiate the terms of a naming rights deal. Yeah. And I'm not going to hold either of you guys to this, but if you guys, both Nick and John had to make a guess on what you know the bankruptcy means for chesapeake and for the thunder and for the naming rights both in the immediate and near future uh what do you guys think nick i think uh chesapeake the way they position themselves you know just looking at their wells and production and and how they compare to their peers it's not like they're a, a bad oil and gas company so i think that perhaps the chapter 11 when they exit could be uh, a great position for them to, to come out and reorg and, and do a whole bunch of different things to become a better company. So I'm going to guess that they come out fine and throughout the process, they decide to keep the name and not sell those rights off just because you look at a, an energy company for them to go drill a well. I mean, you're looking at, at six to $9 million. So this is, you know, half of the cost of one well, they've got six rigs running right now. So that just goes to show how often they're drilling wells. And I would imagine, I'd be fascinated to see the, the numbers on this, but I would imagine that three to $4 million investment that they, they put into the naming rights for the arena every year, that marketing and that advertising in itself probably pays off exponentially. Um, so I think the investment itself in the naming rights is well worth them keeping when it comes to them looking at their contracts and, and how they're going to get this debt bought off. I think that for the upcoming season, whenever it gets played, it will be at Chesapeake Energy Arena. There will be no change for this upcoming season. After that, I'm a little bit more curious what might happen. I wouldn't be surprised if they may have already made their payment for the upcoming season, um, in which case that it's sort of already locked in for the next year. and There'll be no reason for them to adjust that contract at this time and then maybe revisit it later in the bankruptcy. Uh, but you know, keep that option open as long as they possibly can. So long-term, uh, I'm going to punt that, but short-term this season, it'll be Chesapeake Energy Arena. Nick, thank you so much for, for joining the podcast. And absolutely, we're going to have you back on in the future just to talk Thunder basketball. You're doing great work with Forbes. And John, you're doing great work owning dailythunder.com. 
Do I get invited back too, or no? Just, just... Ah, we'll see. That's that's TBD. <laughs> I'll, I'll put okay. that question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Thank you for listening and for supporting the Daily Thunder podcast. If you leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts, we may just read it on the show. You can follow our guests, Dan Favalli at Dan Favalli, John Napier at A John Napier, and Nick Crane at Crane MBA. And you can follow me at Brandon Rabar as I cover the Thunder Beat. If you subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash dailythunder, you'll receive early access to Daily Thunder content, including bonus podcast segments, the exclusive weekend edition newsletter, and other perks like free shirts, special pricing at local businesses, and lots more. This podcast is produced by Rachel Jamison, and you can unfollow her at Rach Jamison. Send your questions and feedback to dailythunder at gmail.com and stay on dailythunder.com every day to catch the latest Thunder news, recaps, analysis, interviews, and nonsense.